listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. So this morning, uh, we're going to continue through a Revelation to the next church. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been working our way through through the, ch- the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, just one at a time. And so this morning we're going to be um, on the fifth of the seven churches that John writes to, and this is the church in Sardis. And many of you probably have um, a translation or have seen a translation that titles this the dead church, which, uh, which is what I've titled this message. And as many of you have noticed, uh, each of these churches has good and bad qualities to them. Um, some have overwhelmingly bad, some overwhelmingly good, but there's usually a mix of both. And um, there's, there's good and bad qualities that need to be addressed. And it's, it's impossible that as we read through this, that we, it's impossible to not compare ourselves, right? It's impossible not to compare uh, the church that we're in now or churches we've been to or churches we've left or whatever um, to these churches and try to find similarities and, and commonalities and differences as well. And this is exactly what we should do. We should be looking at, at these, these letters to these churches and trying to figure out what, what can we learn out of this? What is, what is God telling me out of, out of these letters uh, to these churches? So as we read about the church in Sardis, the one titled the dead church, we have to remember that this is included in one of those, in one of those we need to pay attention to because it's really easy to, um, to skip over and to, to see this title, the dead church and be like, well, we're, we're not a dead church. So then we move through it really quickly, but there's so much to learn in this passage. And I think we'll be surprised um, what, what actually constitutes a dead church. And so the question has to be raised, what does it actually look like? I mean, when we think of dead church, at least what I thought of was, um, was a church where, where there's, you know, the, maybe a small church where, where people are, are lackadaisical, they're half asleep, sitting in their pews, not engaging with the worship, not engaging with the message. They're dismissed and everybody just shuffles out and leaves and there's no fellowship. And sure, that might be a marker of a dead church, but I think there's probably some other things that we can look at. I don't think a dead church is necessarily so easy to spot. At least it wasn't with the church in Sardis. They, they didn't even realize it. And as we're gonna see, there's different ways to identify this. At least there's different ways that Jesus identifies the church in Sardis as being dead. And I think we would be wise to listen and obey. And, and we always put this, this passage up um, as we get started going through Revelation, Revelation 1, 3, uh, where it says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. And that tells us a few things. That tells us, number one, that this, this, this book applies to the church in Sardis. It applies to all these churches, but it also tells us that it applies to us today, just like it's applied to 2,000 years of generations before us. This book applies to all of us, and so there's something we can learn from each letter to the church. So first, a little historical background on the city of Sardis. Um, Sardis is, uh, it was one of the premier cities of Asia Minor, which is today is, is Turkey, modern day Turkey. Um, and it was, it was a very wealthy, affluent city. Um, the gold discoveries, they, they lived in a fertile region, so there was plenty of crops, plenty of animals. Um, commerce, trade routes made this a very wealthy city and, and consequently a very influential church. 
In fact, this church was allowed to have their own place of worship. And because it was a Jewish community, they also had ritually clean food brought in for them to eat, for them to use for sacrifices. In a lot of ways, it seemed like this church had it easy, but as I read through this and as I studied this a little bit, many historians observed the contrast of Sardis between the past splendor of the city and the present decay. And one of the things the city was known for, as a matter of fact, and this is why he, this is why what John says about the church calling them, or what Jesus says about the church calling them dead um, is so poignant is because one of the things that Sardis was known for was these epic burial mounds that they had that were kind of a focal point of the city. They could be seen from a long way away. And it seems like they made these burial mounds such a big deal because they were resting on the past splendor of the city, even though it was falling into current decay. So as I was reading this, I, I, a quote popped into my mind and, um, and I hesitated sharing it because um, you all are gonna get the nerdy side of me here for just a few minutes. So just bear with me as we, as we go, th- go through this. But a quote popped into my mind and, and for those of you that know me, I'm a huge fan of, of Tolkien's writings. I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings. I love reading the books, love watching the movies. And so this um, quote popped into my mind and, and if you've seen the movies or read the books, you know that in the, in the third book, there's this scene where Gandalf the wizard is walking across this, this massive balcony at this city called Ministerith with one of the hobbits. Um, and they had just got done with a, with a meeting with the steward who was sitting on the throne of Ministerith. And, and what they had noticed was that this city that was, was famed for its splendor, I mean, it was, the, it was the greatest, it was the capital city of the greatest kingdom in Middle Earth of men, which is the world that Tolkien created. And so the hobbit was asking Gandalf, well, what happened to this city? It, it had all this past splendor and now it's fallen to pieces. Now it's in decay. He said, how does that happen? And Gandalf said this, he said, the old wisdom was forsaken. Kings built tombs more splendid than the houses of the living and counted the old names of their descent, dearer than the names of their sons. Childless lords set in aged halls musing on heraldry. And it seemed that this is exactly where the city in Sardis was at. They, they had these, these massive tombs. They were paying attention to what had happened in the past. They were resting on their laurels, as it were. And we'll see, in, in some ways, the church was doing some similar things. And so let's, let's dive into this passage. Let's see what, what Jesus had to say to this church. So first of all, verse one uh, says this. It says, "Into the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Now, it's, it's important, first of all, to notice how Jesus identifies himself. I mean, if you've been, if you've been tuning in, whether you've been here or online, over the last few weeks, you've noticed that, that Jesus identifies himself or describes himself differently to each church. And he does this because, because well, when, when he does this, we can tell how kind of where the church is at or kind of what kind of report card they're gonna get. Like, is this church doing well or is this church doing poorly and in need of change? And we can tell this by the way Jesus identifies himself. For example, to the church in Smyrna, for those of you that remember the church in Smyrna as the persecuted church, he identifies himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. And he does this in order to give them hope in their persecution. To the church in Pergamum, it says, he describes himself as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword to remind them that they're stumbling to false teaching in his word is the only word of truth. To Thyatira, he's the one who has eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze because they're in danger of slipping and incurring wrath and judgment. So we see that how Jesus reveals himself at the beginning of the letter kind of tells us where the church is at. We can tell basically right away if, if, we're, if we're paying attention. And we can't forget as we go through this that Jesus isn't only hope for those that are persecuted, 
but he's also just, and he's also judgment for those that don't acknowledge him as the one true king. But this church, however, wasn't in danger of society's judgment. They were very much in danger of Jesus' judgment. It seemed like this church fit in really well in the city of Sardis. The only other church that Jesus identifies himself this way, as a matter of fact, is the church in Ephesus, which tells us that like Ephesus, this church is in danger if they don't repent. In fact, Jesus threatens to remove the lampstand, which is another symbol for the churches. And, and, and if they don't repent, he's gonna remove his Holy Spirit from that church. Now, it also says in some translations at the beginning of this passage, it says, the words of him who. Now, the, the, the words of him who has, ha, holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. And if you remember the initial description of Jesus in chapter one, he's described as having a double-edged sword protruding from his mouth. Now, this means something very specific. It means that the very words of Jesus have the power and the authority to condemn and to destroy as well as to create. And the church knew this. And so when they read this letter, this would have caught, the, this would have caught them off guard and they, they would have remembered this description and they would have noticed right away and remembered that, that the, the authority that Jesus has. So when he described himself in this way, when he described himself as, as the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, they know that he has the authority to exercise judgment and to remove his spirit from that church. And now he goes on basically to say that this church has a reputation for being alive, at least by the world's standards, but by his standards, they're dead. And this was the first marker of a dead church. I mean, again, we think of a dead church, we think of all these things, and we think it's gonna be obvious when you walk into a dead church, but the first issue with this church that marked them as dead wasn't their lack of charisma, or wasn't lack of energy or anything like that. It was that they looked alive to the world but to Jesus, they were not. So this was their first issue. And, and what a terrifying statement. I mean, I can imagine the church reading this, feeling you know, really proud of themselves, feeling like they're doing a really good job, feeling like they're doing everything they're supposed to do. There's, they're, they're, looked on, they're, they're looked at with high esteem by other people in the city. They're, they're a, it's a, a charismatic, just not charismatic in like charismatic denomination, but just there's lots of charisma, there's lots of energy. And then they're reading this and they hear Jesus saying that I know you think you're alive, but you deceive yourselves and I know the truth. In fact, one commentary I read said that they had so made peace with the society around them that the offense of the cross had ceased. They were the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. I mean, you know, you know what that means, right? Like the world today, if we were to tell somebody that Jesus is the only way, they'd get offended because that's not what our society tells us. Everyone, everyone can make their own way. Everyone can make it by, by worshiping whoever they want to worship. And as long as they love people and, and treat people well, then they're going to go to heaven and be just fine. But we know that Jesus is the only way and that's offensive to the world. But it's important to understand that Jesus knows our hearts. So when we, if we were like the church in Sardis, if we felt like the world was looking at us and, and we looked alive, we looked charismatic, Jesus knows where our hearts really are. Are our hearts really aligned with him or do we just look good to everybody else? He knows where you stand. It doesn't matter the accolades or the good reputation we get from anyone. As we continue on in verse two, Jesus says this. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So we know that much like some of the other churches, there's still hope. 
He asked them to strengthen what remains. So there's still some good there. They're, do, they're doing something right. There, there's still hope. There's still some people, as we'll see later, that are considered righteous. And so we know that there's something there. However, he says this, your works are not complete. Now, this is the second thing that marks them as a dead church is, is that their works aren't complete. Now, what does this mean? What, is, what does incomplete works look like? Now, there's, there's a few ways that we can look at this. And in one sense, we can, we can look at them like, like they're much like the city they're living off of their past accomplishments. And they could be thinking about things they've done in the past. They could be thinking about, oh, we've done this and we're really good at this and we built this big church and we baptized a bunch of people this one time and a lot of people have been saved at this church. That's one way. James 2 talks about the deception of being religious, of doing works out of obligation and not with the heart of Christ. I mean, we know this when we, when we read about the Pharisees in the gospels. They were a really good example of this. That's one of the ways we could look at it. We could also look at it this way, that their obedience was incomplete. And what does that mean? I, I wrote this quote down that I read the other day. 99% obedience is still 100% disobedience. So almost total obedience is still not gonna cut it. 99% obedience is still 100% disobedience. Either way, they weren't measuring up. These, these all likely reflect what was happening at the church in Sardis. These were all markers of, of what the, in the, their, 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 their deadness, as it were. These, these were all markers of, of what, what Jesus meant when he was saying that your works are incomplete. And they were just not measuring up. But I think there's probably more to this than just their works weren't measuring up. There's gotta be a root cause because there's a call and an opportunity as we continue on to repent and change. This church needed to be reminded of the seriousness of their situation. They needed to be reminded that they should repent and drastic change must take, take place because there's a warning if they don't. This is one of the things we see all throughout Revelation. There, there's a constant juxtaposition between, between what's gonna happen to those that are judged and what's gonna happen to us that are redeemed. And it's gonna go back and forth throughout the whole book. There's gonna be this circular storytelling going on as we go through. So what happens in verse three? We read verse three and it says this, says, remember therefore what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. In verse three, it says to remember. And now what, what have they received? What are they supposed to remember that they've received? Well, it was the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. It was the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what they're supposed to remember that they have received. And they're meant to keep it and repent. Just like chapter one, verse three says, they need to keep it. They need to obey. They were not told to do better. This is, what, this is what's interesting as we read this. We read this verse three where it says, or verse two where it says, your, your deeds are not, I, I found, I've not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Your works are incomplete. But then in verse three, it doesn't say, therefore do better. It doesn't say, therefore, present complete obedience. Therefore, here's how you be more obedient. Therefore, do this. Therefore, be better at this. It says, therefore, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. They're not told to do better or be more obedient or, or stop resting on past accomplishments. They're, they're told to remember the gospel. You see, much like the church in Ephesus, they were forgetting their first love. They weren't holding on to what they had received like the church in Philadelphia does, as we'll get to in a few weeks. 
The call to repent is to restore the authority that the gospel and the apostolic doctrine has over their lives. What they learned from the apostles through Jesus, the gospel that they've heard, the promise that they have, the call to repent is, is not just to stop living off the past, not, not just to be to stop being fooled by what the world thinks, thinks of us. It's to remember what he's done and to lean on that, to lean on his grace and to lean on his mercy and to lean on his love for each and every one of us. He says, if not, he will come like a thief. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. And I would encourage us to remember these warnings to the church, these warnings that that say to repent because if not then, and we need to take the word of God seriously. We need to take this book of Revelation seriously, understanding that that what we're supposed to be getting out of this book is to remember that Jesus should be the center of our lives. And this is vital to how we read the rest of the book. As we continue on, as we continue on and we start to get into the, the different metaphors and the different, the, the different descriptions of what's gonna happen when Jesus returns and, and how all that's gonna pan out, what we're gonna be getting out of this is to remember that we need to repent and keep him at the center because he has ultimate control. He's gonna return, he's gonna make things right. That means redemption, but it also means judgment. And like I said already, the, the constant juxtaposition between the churches that are faithful and will be saved, and the churches that are not and will be judged should really cause us some introspection. It should really cause us to think and to look at our hearts. And we remember that as we read the book of Revelation, God is merciful, but he's also just. I mean, he couldn't be a good God if he wasn't also just. So we should take these warnings seriously because we know he's gonna render justice when the time comes. And this is not just about looking at our church either. I mean, and it's, it's definitely not about looking at other churches and, and, and thinking like, oh, I remember a church that was like this and I went to a church and we left there because they were just like this and, and where this church, our church is better than these other churches because we do this better. It's not about that. At least it's not only about that. We need to look at ourselves and we need to look at our own hearts and remember what we've received and what we've heard. I mean, where, where are we at as individuals? Where are we at as families? Where are our hearts aligned with, with culture, with society, or do we have our hearts aligned with Jesus Christ? Are we more concerned about his view of us rather than the world? Are we willing to be offensive to the world knowing that we have hope and we have acceptance in him? Are we people, are we as people or as a church resting on our past decisions and accomplishments? And by, by that I mean, I mean, these were questions I had to ask myself. I mean, do I, do I look back and say, well, I, I accepted Christ. I, I said the prayer. I did this one time. I did this missions trip or, or I, I've done this. I, I served at this church in this way and I've done this kind of stuff. Are we, are we leaning on that and thinking that that's complete? Or are we being partially obedient to him? 
when we need to be 100% obedient to him and him alone? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves. We do need to look at these things and make sure that our works are complete. But like I said, the admin, the, the verse, verse three doesn't say to do better. It says to remember that he needs to be the center and that we need to lean on him. Now, as we see in, in verse four, there were apparently some Christians that were still considered faithful. It says, but you have a few people, even in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments. The message translation says that have not pooped their pants. I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. People that haven't read the message are like, oh, I'm never getting that translation. Good night. It says, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. John uses a metaphor that uh, the people of Sardis would have known very, very well since a lot of the city's wealth came from wool manufacturing. And so they understood this idea of clean clothes. And not only that, but there's, there's this this problem in Sardinian culture where if, if you as a citizen came before the, the Sardinian or the Roman gods with soiled garments, you would not only be kicked out, but you'd be taken off the public list of citizens. Now, soiled garments in the church represent those that have deceived themselves. Those, those who have become dead and have defiled their relationship with Christ, and this is kind of the bad news part of this, that's every single one of us. So if Jesus Christ, our Lord, was like the Roman gods or was like the Sardinian culture, then stepping before him with soiled garments as sinful, broken people like we are, he would erase our name from the, from the list of citizens and he would cast us out, right? But we all know, I think, that that's not the way it works. So even though each, each and every one of us can only stand before God with soiled garments. We can only stand before him as broken and sinful, as not complete. That's all we can do. But when we stand before him with soiled garments, he will clothe us in his righteousness. And that's why it says, they will walk with me in white. And then in verse five, it says, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And of course, at the end of the passage in verse six, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we know we have this hope that we can stand before him blemished, unclean, and we will not be blotted out from the book of life. Our names will not be erased. And this is, this is why the response to what the church was doing in verse two is not to tell them to do better or to work harder or to be more complete or some translations say their works aren't perfect. Now, of course, we know our works aren't gonna be perfect, but that's why in verse three, it says, remember, therefore, do better. Remember, therefore, work harder. Remember, therefore, be obedient. No, it says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, which is the gospel. Keep it and repent. So the answer to all of this is to not forget that Jesus is at the center Romans 8, 38 through 39. That's why I had Laura read that passage as it says, nothing can separate us. It said, for, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. I thought there was more of that. There we go. Nor height, nor depth. I don't have it memorized. <laughs> nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 
This statement is a strong affirmation of our Christian hope that our, we will walk in white, that we will be clothed with his righteousness, understanding that, that our works, just like, the, just like the church in Sardis, our works are incomplete, that we're dead, even though we might look alive to the church, alive to the world, we're still dead. I mean, I heard somebody explain one time that this this process of um, of salvation isn't just um, isn't just we were broken and and Jesus fixed us. It isn't just that we were injured and sick and He healed us. Yes, He does all those things, but we were dead in our sins and trespass in trespasses, and He brought us back to life. And so that's exactly what we're talking about with this church in Sardis: is they were dead, their works were incomplete, just like ours are. Their, their works weren't, their obedience was incomplete, just like us. They were blemished and they were, they were dirty and soiled and they were broken and sinful, just like us. But we can stand before Jesus Christ and we can know that leaning on his salvation is gonna bring us hope. Leaning on, on him, it means that he's gonna, he's gonna t- clothe us in, in righteousness. He's gonna clothe us, he's gonna wash us clean. He's gonna clothe us in his righteousness and we're gonna be able to walk alongside of him in glory. Nothing can separate us from Christ. Our hope is this, our name is not gonna be erased from the book of life. I mean, in the first century, like I already said, when Christians were constantly under the threat of being stripped of their citizenship, Christ reminds us that he will confess our names before the Father and our permanent citizenship in heaven will not be taken from us. As we look at this church that's more concerned with outward appearance than their inward relationship with Christ, this church that's more concerned with their moral standing with the pagan society around them, than with their standing with Christ. The church that presents incomplete obedience, we realize that we are exactly the same. We make all these same mistakes. But what we should be doing is praying the same prayer that David prays and saying, Lord, please reveal any unclean way within me. Reveal my my sin to me. Rescue me from that. Rescue me from myself. Rescue me from my sin. Wash me clean and clothe me in your righteousness. What counts isn't our acceptance by the world, but by our acceptance by Christ. It's our acceptance by the world is gonna be fleeting. It doesn't last, nor does it matter. Now, I do feel like I have a slight obligation to handle as we see these phrases that seemingly affirm that we can't lose our salvation, that I should probably mention that because I'm infamous for passing those off to Scott or Nori. Anytime we handle predestination and free will or anytime we handle the once saved, always saved, Conversation. I always want to just hand it off to them, but I feel like um, even though I don't think that's necessarily what this passage is talking about, it's something that we should, we should talk about real briefly. So um, I think, I mean, obviously I think that this, this passage is, isn't, isn't meant to say once saved, always saved. I think it's meant to draw a contrast between uh, the society where you could lose your citizenship before by, by, be, because you step before the gods with dirty clothes. It's contrast that with Jesus where we are, can only step before him as blemished, blemished and soiled, but he's gonna wash us clean and he's not gonna erase our name from the book of life. I think it's meant to draw that contrast. However, I think this tends to come up a lot. It tends to come up as we, as, as we see people deny Jesus Christ that, we, that, that, we're, that we're saved, that had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. We tend to, we tend to feel feel pity for people that we see them step away from Jesus. And, and in a lot of cases, we tend to feel trepidation and fear in ourselves as to whether or not we can lose our salvation. Now, I will say this, like we talk about all the time, Scott talks about this constantly, is there's, there's essential doctrine, an essential meaning that it's essential for your salvation, it's essential for your faith. Things like the virgin birth, 
Things like that Christ is going to return. Things like God created the heaven and the earth. Things like the Trinity, those are essential doctrines. But then there's things that are unessential that we don't need to hold with such a firm grip. Things that your salvation isn't contingent upon whether or not you believe that if you're saved once, you're always saved or whether or not you can lose your salvation. Whether or not you believe in free will or predestination or what side of the spectrum you fall there, that your salvation is not contingent upon those things. So we need to hold these things with a loose grip. But I will say this, whether or not you believe, whether or not you feel fear that, that what if I do something that's gonna cause me to lose my salvation? What if I mess up? What if, what if I just I lose interest and I deny Jesus Christ? Or, or maybe you're the person that, that doubts and you're thinking, you, you believe once saved, always saved, but you're doubting thinking like, what if I'm actually not saved? What if I'm just deceived? I wanna be saved, but what if I'm not? And obviously I'm not gonna make a definitive statement as to one or the other because it's not an essential doctrine. And there's probably people in this room that fall on, on both sides of the spectrum, but I will say this, your flesh doesn't desire God. Our sinful nature is selfish. And so the very fact, if you're feeling fear, if you're feeling trepidation, if you're concerned, if you're asking these questions, what if I'm not really saved or what if I do something that causes me to lose my salvation? The very fact that you're thinking those things tells me that very likely you have nothing to be concerned about. That very likely the Holy Spirit is working on you to grow and change, which is why you desire God because our flesh doesn't desire that. But let's get back to the task at hand. Much like the church in Sardis, we can't live on our past accomplishments as a church or as individuals. In fact, we, we, can't, we can't live on, we can't rely on our works being complete either. We can't strive to do it better. We can't strive to, to bring 100% complete obedience before God because we're not gonna be able to do it. I think every, every single one of us knows that, that we've all tried, but we can't because we're sinful. And so we can't rely on our current works. We can't rely on our past accomplishments, but there's only one work that we can rely on and it's not even ours. There's the one act that we can look back on and rest on is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for us as he died on the cross. When he said, it is finished, the debt had been paid, the ransom had been tarried, and we have the opportunity to spend eternity with him and to stand before the almighty God, clean and complete and whole and righteous, but only because of what Jesus did. Our works are never gonna be complete nor are they gonna measure up, and that's the point. We can't present our works complete before him. I mean, I'd be terrified if this, if this passage said, said to, I haven't found your, your deeds completed in, in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, to do it better. I'd be terrified because I know my shortcomings. And I think we all feel the same way. We know our shortcomings. We know that we're not good enough. We know that we're not enough. That song we just, just sang says that Jesus is enough. He's enough for each and every one of us. But even as we stand before him, blemished, unclean, sinful, incomplete, imperfect, what he did for us covers all that. How he views us is the only thing that matters. I mean, the whole point of the book of Revelation is that we need to view everything that happens in the world, our, all of our relationships, our work, that our marriages, our relationship with our kids, our friends, everything that we do needs to be viewed through the perspective of the heavenly throne room with Jesus in all his glory as the slain lamb at the center. I always love looking back at 
this description. Um, we haven't got there yet, so I don't want to, spo- spoiler alert, Jesus returns. So there you go. I don't want to get too far ahead in, the, in Revelation, but there's this, pa- there's this passage in, um, in chapter, chapter five where, where John hears the roaring of the lion of Judah, but when he looks and he sees, he sees the slain lamb. He doesn't see a lion, he sees a slain lamb, and that's Jesus. And because of this, we, we can't present 100% obedience before Christ, but because of what, we, what he did when we stand before God, when we stand before him, we're not gonna be one of those people that says, oh, I did all these works in your name. I, I did this, I did this, I prophesied in your name. I healed people in your name. And Jesus says the most terrifying phrase in the English language, depart from me, I never knew you. We don't wanna be this, this church of inoffensive Christianity that's constantly adjusting so that we can fit in with the culture. We have to stay firm and hold tight to what we've heard and what we've received, which is that Jesus Christ is the only way and he's at the center. I mean, as we read the book of Revelation, we're gonna see this, this constant like circular storytelling where it's chaos on, in the world and then total order in heaven chaos in the world and total order in heaven, knowing that that is going to come here, that Jesus is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, where we're going to get to experience that in eternity with him. So the question has to be asked as we look at the church in Sardis and realize that a dead church doesn't look exactly like like we think it's going to look. The question needs to be asked, so where are you at? Where am I at? Where are we at as a church? How badly do we want to fit into the world? Are we willing to compromise like some of the other churches did that we've gone through already? Are we, are we okay with compromising so that we fit in better? Do we really desire so much that the culture looks at us as alive and as successful and as growing or whatever adjective you want to put there? But do, you want that, do we want that so bad that Jesus would say that we're dead because we're putting our focus in the wrong place? Are we resting on our past works or are we resting in Jesus Christ? If you're not, then the time has come to repent, to offer up everything we have before Jesus and everything we are before him. Because like I said already, there's hope. There's hope for the church. There was hope for the church in Sardis and there's hope for us today knowing that nothing we can do is good enough. Nothing we can do is perfect. Nothing we can do is complete. But our hope is that we'll walk with him clothed in righteousness. If we stand before him, he's gonna confess our names before God the Father and before his angels. And our names will never be erased from the book of life. So the, the, the exhortation coming out of this is, again, is not that we do better. It's not that we... It's not that we, we, we work harder or not that we... Um, we it's, there's nothing we can do. There's absolutely nothing we can do but repent and and kneel before him and say, to you alone be the glory. To pray that prayer, Lord, reveal any unclean way within me. There's nothing else we can do but keep him at the center, knowing that our hope is that he's gonna return, right? He's gonna come back. He's gonna make everything right. He's gonna judge all that is evil. He's gonna get rid of all that and he's gonna create the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and everything is gonna be back to the way he meant it to be. And we're gonna be, be able to stand in eternity with him. We're gonna be able to stand before God the Father as righteous because of what Jesus did. 
Amen? Amen. Let's pray this morning together. Father, as we, as we study your word, we continue to ask that you would reveal to us exactly what, you need, what, what we need to hear out of this passage, that you would speak to us through your scriptures, that you would speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't forget what we've received, that we wouldn't forget the gospel that we've heard, the hope that we have in you, the salvation we have in you. Father, remind us of that. Remind us of what you've done. Remind us to give you all the glory and the praise and the honor. Remind us to worship you and keep you at the center of everything. To not worship anything else, to not be concerned about what anybody else thinks, to not be concerned about how society views us, but to look to you and you alone for our fulfillment because we know you will fulfill everything even more than we can ask or think. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I, I recognize that there's, there's likely different people in the room and I, I hope that this passage is, has spoken to everybody. Um, I hope that... Um, <laughs> I hope, I hope that uh, Jesus spoke to you in a new way that caught your attention as we read this. And that has nothing to do with anything that I do. That's, that's totally him. And so I, I recognize that there's some, might be some people in this room that just need to reset, that just need to refocus, that just need to, that just need to, to realign our priorities in life, keeping him at the center. And, and that's gonna keep, continue to come up time and time again as we go through Revelation is, is Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. He's the only answer to any problem that we have. He's the only answer to, to any, any um, mistake that we make, any sin that we commit. He's the answer and we can lean on him. And there's some people in this room that haven't felt that hope, that haven't felt that, that assurement of the salvation that we can find in Jesus Christ. So if so, this, mor- this morning is your chance, this is your opportunity to confess him as Lord and Savior. To confess him as the one true king. So if that's you, I would encourage you to, to say this prayer, to pray this prayer along with me. And it goes like this. It's Lord Jesus, I acknowledge you as the one true king. I acknowledge that you are the only one that I should pledge my allegiance to. I recognize that I'm broken, that I'm sinful, that I'm soiled and that I'm unclean. And I recognize that your work on the cross and your atoning blood are the only hope that I have. So I acknowledge you as Lord and Savior and ask you to come into my life and change me. Send your Holy Spirit to help me grow, to guide me, and to help me go down the path of having your will for my life. Only your will. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer, um, we, we'd love to, one of us would love to chat with you, to pray with you. Um, you, can, you can catch me after service. You can catch Nori. Um, or you can email Pastor Scott, scott at foothillscalvary.org, um, and he'll, he'll be happy to get back to you as well. has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. 
We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.